University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. We needed this stool for my child this morning, but I'm going to remove it, uh, though I would love to gain six inches. Uh, how wonderful was it for us to have the choir back this morning? So encouraging, beautiful job this morning done. See some new faces up there. Amen. <laughs> we also uh, want to congratulate Bunny and Daryl on their 70th wedding anniversary, uh, and yeah, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, Daryl uh, wasn't feeling well this morning, so he wasn't here to see the surprise of the gift that is presented on behalf of their anniversary. So today when you walk out, we're going to take that insert and burn it so that no evidence goes out and we'll surprise him again in a couple weeks. Uh, to my literalist out there, I am kidding. Uh, so. Well, Simon Sinek, in his groundbreaking book, Start With Why, argues that very few people and organizations can clearly articulate why they do what they do. By why, I mean your purpose, your cause or belief. Why does your organization exist? Why do you get out of bed every single morning? And why should anyone care? Sinek writes, people don't buy into what you do, they buy into why you do what you do. All organizations know how and what they do, but they do not know why they do what they do. Therefore, they do not inspire, equip, or empower their people. So pause and consider, why do we do what we do as a faith community? I mean, we know how and what we do. We know that we have Sunday school and worship each Sunday, and the new pastor is jacking up that time and moving it around a little bit. We know that we all gather in various teams and committees. We, we know that we have children and families that converge on our campus for Mother's Day Out and Family Tree Cafe each week. We know that we have the upkeep of our buildings and supply our staff with roles. But why do we do all this? What is our purpose? What is our drive? We've written out a fine list of, of core values. We are God-centered, rely on the Bible's authority, we embrace equality, engage in discipleship, and love others. But do we value these things? Does our why drive us each day to equip us, to do the work of God, to inspire us to live out God's dream through UBC? Why do we do what we do? Over the next ten weeks, I want us to engage a series focused on Start With Why, a conversation of why we do what we do, beginning today with looking at what it means to be God-centered, this core value we have. So for this, take a look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. Now, 1 Kings um, is in the Old Testament near 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's like they intentionally put all the number books together, except they actually kept it away from the book of Numbers, which is... Uh, a little weird. But First and Second Kings is a continuation of this kingly narrative of David and Saul and Solomon. It provides the theological framework of God's promise to the Israelite people, uh, to this kingdom that was established through David. Um, the backdrop of the text is a very historic moment, and we need to understand the context of this moment. 
You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the most important verse in all of the Old Testament, for those that are going through 2 Samuel right now, David approaches God and says, God, I want to build you a house, a temple. And God in turn says, no, you're not actually going to do that. Your son's going to do that. But through you, I will build a lasting house. And that day has finally come. Solomon and his leaders have spent years upon years building God a temple. This magnificent structure, this is a big day. This is a huge day. And Solomon delivers a, good, a huge speech in this moment, in verse 22. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven, and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth below, you who kept your covenant of love with your servant who continues to wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hands you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, the promises you have made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel... Let your word that you have promised to your servant David, my father, come true. But will you really dwell on earth, God? The heavens cannot contain you. How much less is this temple that I have built? Yet given attention to your servant's prayers and his plea for mercy, Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying today in your presence. You see, the magnitude of this moment is huge. The people gather there. You can imagine thousands of people had poured into the streets, gathering in the temple courts. The temple would be the central place of, of, of their worship and their service to God. They are literally gathering in a God-centered place. This is where they would bring their offering. This is where they would bring their tithes. This is where they would bring the multitude of their brokenness to be washed clean by a sacrifice to God. Here was a magnificent and an imposing place where the great I Am would be contained in the Holy of Holies. This is a magnificent moment. Here they'll bring the Ark of the Covenant in. At last the people would no longer have a tent, a tabernacle, a place to represent God away from them. God would quite literally be at the center of their lives in the center of God's city. And Solomon lifts this prayer to God, recalling the story of God's promise to the Hebrew people, to his father David and his family. It's almost a resuscitation of the theological understanding of God. And yet, Solomon uses this moment to raise some profound questions. Did you catch it? God, can you even dwell on earth? Can you even be contained in the heavens, let alone this temple? Solomon is making a bold statement with these questions. God is beyond location. God is beyond understanding. That is why he beseeches God to hear his prayer, no matter where God may be. Last year, I had a really cool opportunity to go back to my old high school one last time. Um, You see, over this year, they have quite literally demolished the entire facility down to the ground, and they are rebuilding it in this four-story high school. Um, 
And so it was a unique experience where they invited all alumni to come back and you could walk through the halls of the high school. And I did it with my children, which was a very unique experience. So I went in uh, through the halls and the locker rooms and classrooms, athletic fields where I spent four years of my life. And I recall the the teachers that made an indelible mark in my life, the, the coaches that invested to edify my character, the friends that made lasting memories. But also when I was walking this hall, I remember the girls that broke my heart by saying no the people who didn't see eye to eye with, the many disappointments of teenage years. And I intentionally made sure uh, that I walked into the classrooms that, that I had my, my favorite courses and also the courses I didn't like, which meant I walked into my old chemistry and math classes, um, my two least favorite subjects in the world. I'm a history and literature kind of guy, I'm sorry. Um, You know, when you're a teenager, you're more interested in doing things like chasing after girls and playing football instead of figuring out chemical compounds and linear equations. That's just really not what I was into in high school. But but I'm standing in this old chemistry class. Um, I had this memory flooding back to me of just how complicated this subject was for me. And I remember Mr. Dixon to this day saying, Andy, you know, this chemical compound is not as complicated if you actually just paid attention in class when I was teaching you. You see, if I were to ask you to define the existence of God in a short sentence, for many of us, I know for me, it would begin with, uh, because God is complicated. If we were to give him the task of explaining the Trinity in a few matter of words, could we? What is the role of God in existence in the network of time? How does Jesus relate to God the Father, and what about the Spirit? What if I told you sometimes the best answer when it comes to explaining God is, well, it's complicated. God is complicated. And if we're honest, God is is bigger and deeper and more undefinable than we can grasp. Last year, uh, NASA broke news. um, Astronomers have found uh, seven Earth-like planets orbiting uh, the same star uh, 40 light years away. So this discovery outside of the solar system is rare because uh, the planet has this winning combination of it's similar in size to the Earth. It has uh, all the right temperatures. It could even have water on the surface. They'll spend the next few years studying if somehow we could inhabit that planet at some future generation. And I heard a a lecture recently uh, where astrophysicist was discussing uh, the speed of light and how it helps us measure distance in space. So take, for example, it, it takes light 1.2 uh, seconds to, uh, to travel from the Earth to the moon, and we're roughly 186,000 miles apart. It takes light to travel between the sun and the Earth roughly uh, eight minutes. So that being said, the sun could go out, and we really wouldn't know it for eight minutes, which just, just blows my mind. We are 152 million miles away from the sun. And I thought running 26.2 miles was a long distance. We could drive our car at highway speed from the sun and all the way to Pluto, and it would take us roughly uh, 6,000 years to get there. Just to give you just the magnitude and the scope of our galaxy. But then uh, to reach the outer rim of our galaxy is 9 billion miles. There are literally hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe and galaxies full of stars that, that we are just a blip in the map of, of this grand scale of the cosmic exist, existence of all things. 
And what's so humbling for us to think about this is in the beauty and utter brilliance of the universe that there is this being that crafted and continues to craft everything as we know it. There is all this interstellar space and then there is God, the God of creation, the God who hung the stars into the sky, into suspended space, the God who spun the planets into orbit. And we think that we can try to put this cosmic God into a few words. We can't. Theologians define God as sovereign. God is ruler of the universe. God having the right and authority and power to govern all such things, all according to God's divine will. That God has the right to do whatever God desires in this world. It's unimaginable. And at times we try to put that God into words. And, and William P. Um, Young's masterpiece, The Shack, it was recently released as a movie. There's a tremendous narrative of this heart-wrenching story. But the heart is one man's pursuit to understand a complicated God. And there's this great dialogue between the main character and God in which God says this, I am what some would say is holy and holy other than you. The problem is that many folks try to grab some sense of who I am by taking the best version of themselves, projecting that to the nth degree, and factoring in all the goodness they can perceive, which often isn't much, and then call that God. And while it may seem like a noble effort, the truth is that it falls pitifully short of who I really am. I'm not merely the best version of you that you can think of. I'm far more than that, above and beyond all that you can ask and think. You see, our human minds cannot fully fathom and put into words who God is. This, this year will probably go down as the year that I lose all of my money by going to the movie theater because of all the amazing movies that have come out this year. From Ready Player One, which was a huge disappointment from the book. We won't get into that now. We can discuss that in the Narthex afterwards. Uh, Black Panther, uh, A Quiet Place, Christopher Robin, Avengers Infinity Wars, Mary Poppins Returns. Yes, I'm willing to admit that I want to go see that. Did I mention Solo? Oh, Star Wars story. I, I've been a lover of movies for as long as I can remember. I can remember every single movie I have ever seen. So I'm the kind of guy, if you ask me what my favorite movie is, I'm going to have to say, which specific genre are you talking about? Because you, you can't compare the fantasy of the Lord of the Rings to the drama of The Godfather, the humor of The Idiot to the science fiction of E.T., the social implications of To Kill a Mockingbird to the groundbreaking work of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. You see, a good movie entertains you. A brilliant movie absorbs you into the story and makes you forget that you're sitting into a seat watching actors play out a scene. There's nothing more annoying than sitting next to someone who lacks complete imagination. Try sitting next to somebody during Inception and Big Fish and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and 2001 Space Odyssey with somebody sitting there saying, well, that's just not believable. <laughs> the great Albert Einstein once wrote, a true sign of intelligence is not knowledge but imagination. You see, I often wonder if our understanding of God lacks imagination. We want a concrete image and tangible knowledge of God. We want to be able to put God into words of how God works and how God functions in the world. We kind of, if we're honest, restrict God to what we can imagine within our minds, and oftentimes that is so oversimplified. And don't understand me, we have essential nature of who God is because God has revealed those things to us. This metaphor is probably best to capture what I'm saying. We are obsessed with putting God into a box, 
a cognitive understanding and worldview and desired lifestyle. We like to think of things as being nice and neat and fitting into an organized box. So here is my love box, my complicated box, my family box, my work box, my security box, my health box, my financial box, my dreams box, my entertainment box, and then that secret box I really don't want anybody to see. Let me stuff that under the bed. And we think that we can put God into a box. And yet, this is a complicated God that requires our imagination to begin to understand. God is constantly revealing God's self in all of God's beauty and imagination. And to understand God more fully, we must stop trying to cram God into a box and open our soul to a deeper imagination. Or as Tom Hardy's character said from Inception, you mustn't be afraid to dream bigger, darling. As as early as, as the 1500s, it was a widely accepted belief that the universe revolved around the earth. Why? Well, because the Bible said so, and because humans were at the center of creation. So in 1514, Nicholas Copernicus completed his work, this 40-page manuscript in which he summarized his heliocentric planetary system, alluding to the forthcoming mathematical formulas meant to uh, serve its proof. Okay, all that's to say is he said, hey, by the way, the earth doesn't, uh, or the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The, uh, the earth revolves around the sun. And this was a revolutionary idea. In fact, it was anathema to the church. In fact, his ideas were so heretical that when he died at the age of 70, he was buried in an unmarked tomb. Why? Because he challenged the authority of the church. He challenged the common knowledge and, and what we had perceived to be right in this world. And in 2010, the church actually exhumed his body, blessed it with holy water, and reburied him as a hero. His imagination of the cosmos was bigger than our understanding was finally affirmed. You see, as we begin to try to wrap our mind around this cosmic God, there are some things that we truly do need to understand, and it's seen in the nature of who God is, and it requires our imagination that God is a triune God. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three parts. Understanding that God is not a singular and yet not plural, that God is a distinct Trinitarian nature, matters to our daily journey. You see, defining the Trinity gives a holistic understanding of who God is and how God functions in the world. Each distinct person of the Trinity shows us a distinct nature of who God is. What the Trinity teaches about God is essentially God is relational. God is a community unto God's self. Before the world was created, there was this God that was a community, three parts in one. And each person of the Trinity teaches us something about God. God the Father was not lonely in need of creating something to help God experience companionship. Instead, the Trinity teaches us that God the Father created out of God's experience with God's own self and out of love. The Spirit of God, this mysterious counselor, this wind of power, this breath of life that the Bible speaks about, this is the same Spirit that hovered above the primordial waters of creation that breathed life into existence. The Spirit reminds us that God is still present in our lives and in the world. The incarnation, the physical and spiritual embodiment of God seen through the Son teaches us something about God, that God is present, that God is full of compassion 
Jesus is the direct manifestation and personification of God. You see, the Trinity teaches us something about God, that God is not impersonal and distant, but that God is very much at work in human history. The Trinity is so complex. It requires a great imagination of who God is and how God functions in the world, and it teaches us something profound about God, that God abides in community with us. It also teaches us that God wants to abide in community with you individually. This is what our theology should do within us. God is not interested in us having the perfect answer, the perfect understanding of God. God desires for us to know God first and foremost. It is in the journey of knowing God more intimately that we begin to understand the dynamic complexity of God's nature and how God desires to be present with us. As theologian Peter Rollins put it, here God is not approached as an object that we must love, but as a mystery present in the very act of love itself. Here is a cosmic God of everything, yet this God is very intimately at work in our lives. This is what Solomon is trying to get at in the magnitude of this moment. And that's why in verse 29 through 30 he lifts this prayer, May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer of your servant praise towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant, of your people Israel when you pray towards this place. Hear from heaven, from your dwelling place when you hear, forgive. You see, Solomon wanted God to make God's presence and nature known to him, to all the nations. I think that's the root of theology. is not a pursuit of knowing God and how we can explain God but it's our soul's desire to know God more intimately. And this triune God teaches us that God is present in our world, that God's love for us abounds beyond measure and understanding. But I think the question that we must reflect on is this. Does our understanding of God inspire our journey with God? Getting back to this text in 1 Kings, this is the heart of what Solomon's saying. He's built this grandiose temple for God. He's brought both this symbolic and very real object of God's presence through the ark into the Holy of Holies. He has dedicated this place to the deeper understanding and worship of God, and yet, and yet, he realizes that God is much more than he can see and understand. It is no wonder that Solomon's greatest accomplishment was to ask God to give him more wisdom and more understanding of God. Solomon's awe of the complexity and mystery of God spurred him into a deeper journey with God. How limited or complex is our understanding of God? And does our understanding of God inspire us to journey with and serve God? In late 2004, a tsunami devastated the countries in the Indian Ocean. And a few months later, I hopped on a plane and flew to the country of Sri Lanka. And on the other side of the world, I began to see the devastation firsthand. The mass graves where hundreds of thousands of people lay dead. The miles of ruined homes and businesses, the, the endless shift, uh, this, this makeshift shelters as far as the eye can see, the hunger. And for the next two and a half months, I would work alongside a local pastor as we would rebuild homes, we would distribute food, we'd clean and, and dig new water wells. We created economic systems to employ uh, desperate people. And I came into this experience knowing that God had called me to be here. Yet in the seven years after my vocational calling in 1998, 
I struggle with what God would have me to do and to be. And one evening, I, I ventured out to the coastline and I, and I crawled on top of a rock fixture in the Indian Ocean. And there I was watching the sunset, and, and I remember this like it was yesterday. I remember watching that these same waters that had taken the life of 230,000 people was yet this beautiful scene in this moment. And in the magnitude and radiance of this moment, the same body of water, I began to understand my calling. That my calling was not just to go do the things that I was comfortable doing. My calling was to to go into the local church to serve God's people. This was a God-sized and God-centered experience that transformed my life and my calling. Is your journey God-centered? Are we willing to not only join God in a beautiful community that we see in the Trinity, but are we willing to live out that faith each day? God is not interested and you having a perfectly pinned theological understanding of who God is and yet never acting upon that knowledge. God is calling you to have faith and to live a life that reflects your faith in God. A cosmic God is inviting you to be a part of cosmic transformation. Is your faith in God truly a journey that is God-centered? As the great Richard Rohr put it, We do not think ourselves into a new way of living. We live ourselves into a new way of thinking.